0: So, continuing with um, the commentary on the five hindrances, the last one was agitation and worry, and we had um, Lumpur Cha's comments about um, not expecting a monkey to be other than a monkey. The next section and the last of the five is called doubt and indecision. The last of the hindrances, skeptical doubt, is the most insidious and crippling member of the group. Insidious means um, uh, difficult to detect, or sort of sliding in the back door and taking over. Something that, um, uh, say, has a, an influence that is um, uh, so not very obvious or not not a very apparent kind of, uh, so that it can have a, an effect, have an impact without it being a clear or obvious that uh, it is doing so. The sceptical doubt is the most insidious and crippling member of the group. It is characterized by vacillation, by the hesitation to follow through on a commitment. So vacillation is like, should I, shouldn't I, what's the right thing to do, Uh, should I do this, should I do that? It's a vacillation. The hindrance occurs when meditators possess sufficient information about the teachings or the technique to take them through the initial stages of practice but they become paralysed by a need to be sure of the effectiveness of the method, the teacher, or the teachings, or their own capacity to progress, before making the effort and renunciation necessary to verify it. Not all doubt is a hindrance to meditation practice. On the contrary, some doubts are taken to be signs of intelligence. Speaking to the Kalamas, the Buddha said, It's good, you are doubting about things worthy of doubt. The doubts of those who recognize that they lack necessary information, or the clear criteria to make a good choice, are not considered to be defilements of the mind. The hindrance is born from a craving for guarantees that cannot be provided. The Buddha's simile to illustrate this hindrance is of a a traveler lost in a desolate place, whose fear of the possible dangers on the path to safety outweigh outweigh their desire to reach that safety. So, this is a, a good point. Um, and uh, the, um, so, this uh, quality, vichikicha, doubt in this respect, is um, uh, often called skeptical doubt. But I think the way Ajahn Jayasaro describes it, that sense of vacillation of what's the right thing to do, um, should, I, should I do this, should I do that. So I, uh, I get asked uh, an extraordinary large number of times this kind of question. What should I do? What's the right thing for me to do, Ajahn? What should I do? And uh, usually I, I take uh, the words out of Ajahn Chah's mouth by saying, well, you tell me. <coughs> well, how am I supposed to know it's your mind? And so that um, the, the, the mind creates this idea of there is this one right thing that I am supposed to do. And if I, if I do this thing, then I will find the, the answer and I'll live happily ever after. We don't spell it out in those, in those terms, but that's often the way that we hold it in our mind. If I just, if I just had the code, if I just had the, the map that tells me you know, what I should do, then i just follow the code, you know, this sort of hidden golden thread buried under the ground, and it would take me to where I'm supposed to be and I'd, I'd be you know, able to live happily ever after. As though there's this one right thing that we should do, and if we could just find that one right thing, then it would guarantee, be guaranteed to lead us to this, this happy place. And um, so it's, it's also a, 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 what you can call a fatalistic kind of thinking, that it's as if it's all fixed, there's, there's only one right thing to do, and if you could just discover what it is and then you do it, then that will guarant, uh, guarantee happiness. But it doesn't work that way, and it's also very that whole model is really contrary to the to Buddha Dhamma. Rather than thinking there is one, there, the, yeah, I just need to discover my path, Ajahn. <laughs> this is what's my. Can you tell me what my path is, and such like, so that it's got this um, uh, say belief behind it of uh, there's a, a fixed format, and uh, and if we just find out what that format or that, f- that system is. Then we'll be uh, then we'll be able to be happy, but uh, Buddha is not um, a, it's not a fatalistic teaching. It's not about a, a, a future that is already say um, uh, a rigid, predetermined uh, set of, of actions or potentials, even. But rather, it's much more varied and, and organic, and its uh, things depend on the choices that we make, and so that um, the uh, sometimes people relate to to the buddha's teaching as as if it was a kind of um uh, like a a single predetermined path and uh, so when people say it was meant to be ajahn i say no it wasn't <laughs> people when some kind of happy coincidence occurs oh it was meant to be you know you, you meet somebody that you you have a good friendship with or things come together in a particularly fortunate way then uh, so uh, again, I think that that betrays or displays a kind of fatalistic thinking, uh, or de- de- deterministic thinking. If those are not too long uh, as English words, but so it's like uh, it was meant to be. It's like, well, no, it wasn't. It was just uh, it was a, a fortunate set of circumstances that brought you together with a person that you you get on with, or that um, made things work in a very convenient way. But uh, what you have in, in Buddha Dharma is that the Buddha's um, focus is on the choices that we make, and that our choices make a difference. It's not like there is one fixed path for you in the future that is the right thing for you to do, because it just depends on which, uh, which turn you've made. Like it's like, what's the right way to go to London? Well, you can go via the, um, the M25 and go in on the, uh, the M4, or go around and come in on the A3, or <laughs> you can go through the little country lanes, uh, you can go down the M1, uh, which are the roads that are clear? Uh, which part of London you want to go to? Which roads are blocked? If there's a, if there's been a, uh, a crash on the M25, then you don't go that way because there's no way through. So the uh, the the choices that we have before us depend on the choices that we have made already. Does that make sense? And so that it, it's not a, uh, as though there's a, a fixed thing for me to be doing, and so that with with respect to, to doubt and what Ajahn Jayasaro is talking about here, uh, a lot of that uh, that doubting is uh, what should I be doing? What's the right thing for me to do? Tell me how I should practice. What's the right meditation for me? So it's based on that idea of there, there is one right thing or there's a thing I should be doing and that somehow the person in a position of authority, the one sitting in the, in the high chair <laughs> uh, or the one in the middle of the, of the floor has got that... That uh, that role <coughs> or that ability to tell you yes do this and you'll be happy. And so um, both in the Buddha's teaching and uh, and in the way Ajahn Chah would present it, he would hand it back to you and to say, well, don't ask the, an authority figure to tell you what's the right thing, but you, you experiment, you find out for yourself. So that that um, teaching that Ajahn Jayasaro is quoting here to the Kalamas, probably many of you are familiar with this where the, the Buddha went to this, um, this village called Kesaputta, And the uh, the local people there said, um, well, we get many, many spiritual teachers coming through here. And they have all kinds of different philosophies. And, it, and each one of them says, uh, only this is true, everything else is wrong. I'm right and all the others are wrong. And uh, we don't know who to believe because uh, they, they all have a convincing argument. But... Um, we're in doubt about which ones uh, are telling the truth or which ones are accurate and which ones are not accurate. And that's when the Buddha says, it's good, you know, it, it's suitable that you doubt because you're doubting that which should be doubted. And so that um, you are <coughs> you're doubting about things worthy of doubt. So that uh, then the Buddha says to them, so rather than believing any authority, or even himself, you know, someone who's got the reputation of being an enlightened being or someone who's got uh, pr- tremendous knowledge or the authority of the scriptures or just because everybody around you believes this is this is right and this is wrong the encouragement that the Buddha gives to the Kalamas which is very much in the spirit of Lumpur Lumpur teaching as well is try things out and see what happens see for yourself Um, so the Buddha said listen to what people say listen to the various teachings take them in uh, put them into action and then see what the result is if you If you try out a teaching and it leads to benefit for yourself and others, it leads to harmony, it leads to peace, it leads to non-contention, then take it and use it. If it leads to confusion, to agitation, to conflict, then leave it aside. So that uh, uh, is essentially advice I give uh, several times a week to a lot of different people that come through here and uh, say experiment, try things out, because everybody is different and that uh, rather than there being a right thing for us to be doing, then it's more, that, uh, it's more helpful for us to get to know what works for us and what the, the results are of the, the ways that we can work with the mind in terms of meditation or in terms of, of our practice. In the early days of Wat Bapong, the majority of the monastics and lay supporters received only the rudiments of a formal education and had strong confidence in Lumpur. so rudiments means like the just the, the basic uh, uh, preliminary kind of education so they would have uh, the primary schools didn't really exist so it would be enough schooling to to go to learn to read and write and um, the uh, uh, the very basic Subjects of, uh, say, mathematics or a little bit of Thai history, probably, and and not much else. So their main source of knowledge (coughs) and information would be listening to the Dhamma teachings of Numbuchara. Their main doubts would center on whether or not they wanted to remain as monks. In later years, with more people from the city coming to the monastery and growing numbers of Western disciples, overthinking became more of an issue in the monastery. Dance about the teacher, the teaching, the student's ability to practice, uh, the student's ability to practice the teacher's teaching. They multiplied. Lumpur's response to the chronic doubters was always to point out, and his Lumpur speaking, doubting never stops because of someone else's words. Doubts come to an end through your own actions. Then, as goes on to say, placing unquestioning trust in the words of an authority figure can suppress doubts on one level, but it's a strategy that can never achieve a lasting security from them. Lumpur taught that the only way to go beyond doubts was through insight into their nature as impermanent, conditioned mental states. On one occasion he explained why he didn't conduct daily interviews with the monks, as is the practice in many meditation centers. He says, If I answer your every little question, you'll never understand the process of doubt in your own mind. It's essential that you learn to examine yourself, to interview yourself. Listen carefully to the Dhamma talk every few days, then use the teaching to compare with your own practice. Is it the same? Is it different? Why do you have doubts? Who is it that doubts? Only through self-examination will you understand. If you doubt everything, then you'll become totally miserable. You'll be off your food and unable to sleep, spending your whole time chasing after this you and that. What you must bear in mind is that your mind is a liar. Mental states are just that way. They don't last. Don't run around with them. Just know them with equanimity. As one doubt passes away and a new one arises in its place, be aware of that for what it it is as well. Sorry, I'll say that again. As one doubt passes away and a new one arises in its place, be aware of that for what it is as well. Then you'll be at ease. If you rush about after your doubts, then not only will you be unhappy, but the doubts will increase." So this is a very significant piece of advice. and um, (coughs) Again, one of the the, the key things um, um, that very much uh, is the case with many Westerners, and also nowadays with more educated or over-educated Asian people, is that uh, with respect to thought there's the assumption that if I think something it is therefore true. If a, a thought takes shape in my mind it's an accurate representation of reality. And so, and that's uh, partially to do with our so European conditioning and uh, goes back all the way to the Greek philosophers and uh, the idea of thought as some kind of ultimate reality and so that the a thought is somehow more real or more true or more valid than, a, than even a material object. And so we, we give thoughts a, a tremendous amount of value and then we assume that every judgment that the mind makes is somehow true and valid, meaningful. And so that this little comment that Lumpur Cha makes, what you must bear in mind is that your mind is a liar. Uh, that's one of the, the key principles of, of say developing mindfulness of thought and, uh, and awareness of, of um, the thinking process is that uh, your thoughts are not telling the, not telling the truth, or they're not telling the whole truth. You know, every thought is like a, a, um, a convenient fiction or a, a passing impression. And that it's often because we give our thoughts a huge amount of value and take them to be true. Like, this is good, that's bad, I'm a good person, I'm a bad person. I'm getting somewhere, I'm, getting, I'm not getting anywhere. That the mind makes these kind of judgments and then takes them to be absolutely valid and true and real, dependable. And so, uh, one of the interesting things about the uh, uh, say prominence of mindfulness teachings and practices in the world today is because uh, one of the the founders of what's called mindfulness based cognitive therapy. Uh, a man called John Teasdale, it was through listening to a Dhamma talk of uh, Lumpur sametos uh, when he was visiting the Oxford University Buddhist group. And when, uh, when Lumpur was giving a talk, he made the two particular points, that, your, that thoughts are not yours and they're not true. And uh, John Teasdale was a, a, um, uh, a psychologist and he had been working together with a couple of other people, uh, Mark Williams and Zindel Siegel to try and uh, work with uh, the mindfulness-based stress reduction program uh, developed by uh, John Kabat-Zinn, and to find a way that, that that could be used to work more directly with depression and and, uh, and also other afflictive mm-hmm. mental states. So they were look. He was looking for a way that you could use um, the uh, Buddha's teachings uh, in a in a way that. Um, helped that stress reduction program more be directly related to the mental realm and to the realm of thinking. So apparently he took those two principles, that your th- thoughts are not yours and they're not true, and made that the <coughs> kind of centerpiece of the their mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So that when, uh, uh, when you're paying attention to your thoughts and then recognizing this isn't true, this is not real, this is just it's just a mental noise, and then it helps them there to be a, a less uh, of, a, of an oppressive or, or stressful quality in the flow of our thinking. And so, um, it, uh, most, for most of us we don't have to look very deeply to recognize, oh yeah, I just believe my thoughts all the time. If I, if I judge this person is really good, I take it to be true. If I judge someone as being really bad, I take it to be true. I judge myself as being really bad or really confused, I take that to be true. If I think I'm really someone special, I take that to be true. And the, um, the shift of view uh, in terms of, of thinking is uh, it, it's one of the, the reasons why there's um, so much sort of mindfulness around the world today is because when they introduced that program... <coughs> Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, that same group of of three scientists, they found that it was five times more effective on dealing with depression than any other treatment over the last hundred years. And so when they published those results in about 2007, people said, this is ridiculous, you're you're claiming to be more effective than any kind of medication, any kind of therapy with with psychoanalysis or uh, any kind of psychiatric treatment, surgery or medication. You can't be that successful, so they did the study again, the first one they did here in the UK, then they did it again in the US, and they they got the same results, it was five times more effective. Up until that point, if someone had had two or more periods of depression, their chance of of recovery was uh, 10% or less. That 90% of people would never recover, they would keep getting uh, periods of depression, regardless of the treatment and they showed a 50% recovery rate. So that was five times better than anything, anything else in the previous hundred years. So that's why the world started to sit up and take notice, and that's why you see mindfulness everywhere now. And book mindfulness. Mindfulness being marketed as this, sort of this wonderful thing that's going to make everybody happy. Yeah. <coughs> but uh, it's, uh, I feel, not just because it's got or somebody 's name on it, yeah, you know, our team was successful. But uh, particularly that, uh, that basic principle that just because you think it, it doesn't mean it's true, is uh, extraordinarily helpful in just um, providing a quality of, of clarity. So, you know, so, uh, an example that I usually give in this respect is like, if you're watching a television or you're uh, you're seeing a, a television program, or you're hearing something on the radio. You, uh, you, you can understand the words; they have meaning, but you're not necessarily particularly interested in that. Like I was staying with my my sister, uh, and uh, my sisters, and uh, brother-in-law over uh, over a couple of days after Christmas, and they just have the TV going in the corner of the room pretty much all the time. we be a whole morning just on food programs. Just like one cooking program after another, how much time can you spend on food? I mean, it's like, it's insane. Like one program, okay, that, that food, the cooking program over, now it have something interesting. It's another food program, and then another one. Like, what is this? So you can understand the words and you can see people being enthusiastic looking into the camera, you know, chopping their vegetables and, and of, uh, shaking in their paprika or whatever. But um, it's like, well, you don't really care you know, whether, I mean, um, obviously someone's excited or interested in their program, they're, they're doing their thing to present it, but you're not really that interested. You can understand the content, but it's not that meaningful, it's not that important. <coughs> I didn't even choose the channel. You know, it's just what's going on in the corner of the room. So much of our thoughts are like that. It's just like a food channel going on in the corner of our mind. Ooh, look at this. Ooh, delicious. You know. So what? You know, you can't even actually taste it. It's just an idea of a taste, like on the TV, you know, when um, when uh, somebody is like, ooh, oh, delicious. You can't actually taste it or smell it. It's just there. On a, uh, it's just a sort of fabrication. So the... Um, the, the mental world is a lot like that so if we can remember oh this is just uh, a, a bit of mental noise it doesn't have to be meaningful you don't have to suppress it you don't have to wipe it out but you, you don't have to give it value you don't have to make it meaningful you know, because that, that meaning is something that the mind adds to it On reaching a certain point in their practice, some meditators would begin to wonder about the identity of the states they were experiencing while they were meditating. Lumpur would say they weren't on a highway. There were no signposts in the mind. On another occasion, he said it didn't really matter if you were ignorant of the name of a fruit as long as you were aware of its sweetness and fragrance. Meditation, and this is Lumpu Cha speaking, Meditation is the same. It's not necessary to know what things are called. If you know the name of the fruit, that doesn't make it any sweeter. So be aware of the relevant causal conditions of that state. But if you don't know the name, it doesn't matter. You know the flavor. If someone tells you the name, then take note of it. But if they they don't, there's no need to get upset. Numpur once reassured a Western disciple, Doubting is natural. Everyone starts out with doubts. You can learn a great deal from them. What's important is that you don't identify with your doubts. That is, don't get caught up in them. This will spin your mind in endless circles. Instead, watch the whole process of doubting, of wondering. See who it is that doubts. See how doubts come and go. Then you will no longer be victimized by your doubts. You'll step outside of them, and your mind will be quiet. You can see how all things come and go. Just let go of what you're attached to. Let go of your doubts and simply watch. This is ta- this is how to end doubting. Now, <coughs> well, the um, this is also a um, uh, something that comes up quite often. That um, you know, Lumpur Chah was uh, he was a very adept meditator himself and, and was uh, quite uh, skilled in terms of concentration or or deep mind states. But he never made much of different stages of meditation, talking about different levels of jhana or different levels of insight. He generally avoided that kind of um, ranking of things, so putting um, stages, because uh, there can be a, um, something, I was having a chat with someone earlier today about this, in monasteries where there's a lot of focus on which, which stage have you reached? Okay, Fanta has he got to... Stage three, Tan uh, Maybe he looks like he's past stage four already. Tan <laughs> yeah. Tanao, oh, He's at least stage eleven. You know. So. The uh, and then we judge each other and then we doubt. Oh, and, you know, Ajahn said, I just he, was he was he joking? Stage eleven. What's that? Oh, <laughs> I better look that up. You know, um, so that uh, we can get filled with co- you know, doubt and competition and the sense of of um, attachment to those kind of levels. So Lumpucha and and Lumpur sumedo, and in generally in our monasteries the approach is to, to give people the tools to develop skillful states both in terms of, of insight and in terms of concentration but then to, to not make a big deal out of particular stages or, or particular uh, qualities. So uh, I was saying earlier today how I was once on a retreat with Lumpur sumedo and uh, a 10-day retreat. And every single talk for the whole 10 days was about letting go of self-view, letting go of uh, attachment to conventions, and letting go of doubt. So those are the three obstacles to stream entry, the first three fetters, the three sangyojana. And so that basically every single talk was about um, dealing with the, the things that obstruct insight and... and uh, and uh, aimed at those three qualities, um, uh, Sakaya Ditti, self-view, Silapata Paramasa, attachment to conventions, and Vichikicha, and doubt. But Lumpur Sumedha never mentioned stream entry once in the whole ten days. But basically talking to people about the tools where, where the mind can arrive at that kind of level of insight, but not saying, if you do this, you will arrive at you know, this place, and such like. So that's very much the, the style, and uh, Lumpur Chai uses this very helpful comment. He says, it's not like driving on a road that says, you know, Hemel, Hempstead, three miles, or, or, or you know, Watford, you near know, 10 miles. You don't have road signs that, uh, in the mind. And that um, the, um, the most skillful thing is to not be too concerned about all of that, just to be able to um, say, know your own experience, as he says, if you know the taste yourself, then it doesn't matter what you call it. doesn't it? If you know what the, the, the type of fruit is, you, you've got a name for it, but, main, but the main thing is that you tasted it, you know it for yourself. And so that um, that's a, a, uh, a theme that carries on, or a style of teaching and practice that I feel is very, very helpful. So in this last paragraph where he says, uh, See who it is that doubts, see how doubts come and go. Then you will no longer be victimized by your doubts. You will step outside of them, and your mind will be quiet. So that's that's essentially the the I would say is the, the best way of of working with with doubt and this kind of should I shouldn't I what's the right thing to do um, those kind of um, anxious agitated um, vacillations uh, of mind. And uh, again, Ajahn Sumedha would often teach about this and uh, and speak it in in, uh, in a very helpful way. And because uh, when you have a doubt in the mind, when there's a question like that, then you feel like if I uh, if I just had the answer, then the set would be complete. I'd have the the missing piece, and then I would be happy. I would, I would know what to do. I'd know what the right thing is. So we feel like there's this bit missing. If I could just get this bit and fit it in, like a last piece of the jigsaw puzzle, if I could just get this piece and fit that in, I would have the answer to my question. So when the mind is dwelling on doubt, it feels like we're incomplete. I've got to know. I've got to know. What should I do? What should I do? What's the right thing for me to do? Should I go? Should I stay? Should I go into the monastery? Should I ask for ordination? Should I leave the monastery? (laughs) Yeah. What should I do? Yeah. The uh, the mind absorbs into the question and then because of that absorption then it feels like there's a bit missing so what uh, uh, what is p- spoken to here where he says step outside of the doubt and uh, and your mind will be quiet what that means is that's uh, recognizing well this is a question and uh, again i found over the years uh, Lumpur namatos teachings on this very very helpful said so what's happening is that your 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 mind is saying, "There's something missing. If I if I just got this answer, then I would be complete." But actually, the doubt, the question, is a complete thing in and of itself. You know, what should I do? That is a, a complete sankara on its own. There's nothing missing. It's just a, a mental formation that says, "What should I do?" And so that <laughs> to step out of the doubt is in a way to uh, the best way of doing this is to clarify what the question is what's what should I do what's what's the best thing for me to do and to uh, say spell out that question just to let that question be voiced in the space of the mind what should I do that's got a beginning a middle and an end it arises it passes away when you get to the end of the question what should I do then if you're if you're not bought into the question, then you realize, oh, that's just a like any other formation, like the sound of the words. What should I do? The sound begins and ends. <coughs> a cough begins and ends. You know, it just—it's a—it's a, just a a formation, a set of perceptions. It's telling you it's incomplete, but in actuality, it it uh, it is complete. It's, but it's just this taking the shape of a of a, con, a conceptual formation. A, 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 a question: What should I do? So then, in, in developing this, Lumpur Sumedha would um, he would uh, very hopefully teach how to be mindful of thought. <coughs> so uh, often, what a method uh, that uh, you can use for this is to take a, a really um, completely uh, non-personal and emotionally unloaded thought, like today is Monday. So you bring your mind to as much quietness as you can. Let the mind be as still as possible, empty, spacious. And then think the words, today is Monday. And notice the space before the thought. Then the thought is there, today is Monday. Then the space afterwards. So you're in that moment, it's not personal, it's not a judgment, it's not a... Hasn't got any kind of emotional loading in a monastery. You know, Monday is kind of an ordinary day. <laughs> it's not like I have to go back to work because you were working on Sunday already. So it's just uh, a, a, an emotionally neutral, non-personal thought. So you can watch that conceptual thought arising, taking shape, dissolving. So then uh, if you develop a bit of skill with just taking a, a bland, ordinary thought, like today is Monday, <coughs> or you know, any, any day, then, uh, you can use that to, to explore doubt. What should I do? Just to the, Notice the space before the question. You can listen to the sound of silence. What should I do? The space afterwards. And you even actually notice the space around it, even while it's there. If you're listening to the sound of silence, you can hear it even as you're saying the words, What should I do? You know, the, The sound of silence is still there, even as the words are being uh, pronounced. So that's letting go of the question. uh, Letting the the question just be a a thought formation, a a perception arising and being there. And so that that in that moment, the mind is letting go of that doubt. Because it's saying, when you're absorbed into the doubt, then there's the assumption that the universe is incomplete. I've got to get this answer. When I've got the answer, then I'll be happy. Then the universe will have all the bits that it's supposed to have. But how, how could that be true? It's just one little blip going on in the mind of one human being. You know How could the universe be incomplete right now? It's impossible. Yeah. Uh, it's just that particular way of describing this particular set of experiences You know, for this individual uh, entity. What should I do? And then with that bit of... Perspective, then it becomes, uh, I say, clearer. Oh, that this is a question. That's all. It's a good question. It's a question, and so then the the mind that's really attached to the, to the doubt, will say, you can't wriggle out of it like that. You've got to decide. You've got to know. You have to know. You say, well, thank you very much. This this is the I have to know, thought. <laughs> I have to know. The Silence before. the Silence during. The silence after. Oh. So it's developing that spaciousness around thought, and then what happens is that uh, uh, if you if you work with with doubts in this way, is often that when you you let there be a bit more space around those kind of questions, then it can become clear. Oh, wrong question, or or the way I'm putting that question presumes a lot of of um, of other ideas. Is that true? Is that is that the whole picture? And so just stepping out of the, the, the doubt, that question, and um, letting it be known just as a, a a question, a thought form, then the mind is, is often able to see the situation in, in uh, different ways, to see from different angles um, that you have been making all kinds of presumptions about who you are and what you're doing and what's important, what's not important. And so <coughs> that... Um, uh, uh, ability of the mind to let go of a particular uh, activity or a question, and and um, to no longer believe in it or buy into it, that creates a, a, a quality of spaciousness, and um, and also that there's a, a an, an ease in the attitude that you find yourself not so pressurized by. I've got to find out. I've got to decide. I've got to know. I've got to know. But rather, oh, that's a question. <laughs> That when there's a genuine quality of wisdom established, when there that quality of uh, mindfulness and wisdom is there, then the heart is actually much more at peace with mystery, with not knowing. It doesn't have to have that uh, an answer, or it doesn't believe that oh, if, if I just got the a solution to this particular question, that then you know all my troubles will be over, or everything will i be uh, I would be happy. It's just. No, it's just a, a particular way of looking at this field of experience, that's all. It's just one little thing. It's not, how could that be anything uh, substantial or something that would could make uh, all the uh, all the difference in the world. It's uh, seeing it in its true context, and seeing it in, in its true light. So that um, uh, dealing with this particular hindrance uh, of... Of doubt and that kind of, uh, what should I do? What's the right thing? Um, this is extraordinarily I found extraordinarily helpful just to to uh, let go of that to to in a sense voice the question internally. You can even write it down. Sort of get a a, note, a notebook and just write down what the question is, and just to to think the words consciously in the internally and just. And then just to look at that and say, "Good question." That's all. This is a question, and then see the effect that has on, on the heart, and somehow the mind loosens its attachment uh, to that in a in a radical way. So, any questions? <laughs> any uh, so? Uh, there's a lot in that. But uh, any thoughts, reflections, questions? Yes, Elena. Um, I just, um Earlier you mentioned that behind it is a need for a guarantee. So it's not like the lack of information, but we want a guarantee that it will work or we will feel great forever after. Mm -hmm. So behind it, it's a kind of fear of unpleasant feelings that we want the answer and to be safe and so Mm -hmm. on. So um, we can let go of the thought that it's kind of not believing it, but the feeling behind it, so this is what kind of fuels it, and how to work with this feeling of need, for safety, or guarantee, or something like that, like the feeling it itself that it kind of manifests in the body or emotions? Well, that's a good question. Um, the, um, that looking for a guarantee, or I'm going to be okay, if I do this I will be okay. So, it's a lot to do with self-view, So when there's an attachment to to self-view, to I and me and mine, then the unknown is frightening, it's dangerous. Um, And so uh, as long as our practice and our our efforts in spiritual life is based on me trying to get to a safe place, me trying to be happy, me trying to be comfortable, me trying to be free, as long as that I and me and mine is sort of solid and um, uh, kind of believed in, then the unknown and the the future and and the unknown nature of the future is always going to be frightening, it's it's dangerous because um, that's the uh, the effect of self-view attaching to I and me and mine. Is it that's a cause of that that fear? So, um, the uh, if the, the heart lets go of that quality of self-view, if there's a, a the uh, the kind of relinquishing of of I and me and mine that the um, <coughs> this is what I am, this is me, this is myself. If the the mind is trained to to not see things in terms of self-view, but seeing things in terms of nature, in terms of dhamma. Uh, then the unknown is not frightening, but it's rather uh, there's a quality of wonderment, or a mi- there's a mystery. You you don't know, but that that not knowing is is, is delightful. It's not threatening <coughs> because the the fear is a product of of self-view and and the body. You know, it's also our animal ancestry having a body protect, you know, needing to protect it from the the cold and the dark, and predators, and <coughs> such like, so that um, that um, that the more that the the practice can also be used to challenge those habits of self-view, like Ajahn Chah says, um, uh, see who it is that doubts. You know, when you when you when you turn the attention inwards and uh, have that question. Who is it that wants to know? Who's asking this question? Who do these doubts belong to? Mm-hmm. You know, who, is it who is it that's meditating? You know, who, who owns this mind? You know, all those ways, they're, they, they're questions, but they are questions that are used to illuminate the habits of uh, attachment. That like, Oh, I'm Elena, um, this, is, uh, this is my mind, this, uh, I'm this person, this is who I am. So the development of insight, particularly into not-self, is that, um, the, the thing that, that um, uh, in a sense, removes that cause of, of fearfulness. And the, the more the heart is really free, oh, I and me and mine, that ahankara uh, mamankara, eye-making and mind-making, then life becomes much less frightening. You still don't know, but that's why the development of the, perception of impermanence, if it's done skillfully, then it's it's not just making you more neurotic and frightened. <laughs> it's it's liberating because it's, of course, everything's uncertain. Oh, right. Rather than, <gasps> don't say that, don't say that. So that it's uh, by deliberately, uh, say, developing that perception of, of uncertainty and, uh, and un- unconsciously undermining those habits of belief and attachment, then the heart is is freed. You're no longer creating the causes for that fearfulness. So, to the jitta, the unknown is delightful. There's a quality of wonder or or mystery. To the ego, it's terrifying. It's death. It's that that sense of, I I am under threat. And so that the... uh, uh, we have to work a lot with our physical instincts. You know, protecting the body, and the kind of social instincts. Oh, what does he think of me? And oh, am I doing this right? Am, you know, do people like me? You know, there's a lot of fear—not for physical protection, social protection, and so on. So the, the conditioning is very, very strong. So there's a—it's it's important to get to know that. And I, I mentioned how I was a, a real. <coughs> kind of world class warrior for um, many many years, and I, I um, had been a, in the monastery for for quite a long time, six or seven years before I even realised how much I created that feeling of worry and anxiety. I just I just thought that's how everybody relates to life all the time. I just I thought that was living equals you know worry, you know, and. Uh, that i literally i mean it's it's kind of amazing it was amazing when i started to look at it i just thought oh i just assumed everyone was like this all the time i didn't know there was any other way of being other than just <laughs> <laughs> if it exists worry about it and that um it and it was really uh lumpo talking about mindfulness of emotion and for a, a year or two <laughs> and uh it, uh, often it was his sort of morning reflections that he would give here in in, uh, in the eight in the, in the nineteen eighties that finally it began to dawn on me, oh yeah, fear is an emotion oh you can be mindful of this as uh, as an emotion and then and realize oh my goodness you don't have to be worried or afraid all the time it t- does actually come and go um so that uh, I was extremely um, benefited by, by Lumpur Sameda's teachings at that time. And then also how uh, you can recognize in, from direct experience when the heart is free of self-view, then you, that quality of not knowing, what's going on? What do they think of me? Uh, what should I do? It's just the, the, the heart is much more relaxed. It's like, well, I don't know, Yeah, you know, figure it out when I get there or, or not. <laughs> and then you uh, you're, you find yourself far more at ease and ready to adapt to all situations, and that say worrying about what people think of you. you know, I, I spend a huge amount of time just trying to please everybody all the time, so that you're this, sort of this knot of tension. And then uh, it took a long time just working on that that feeling to just say, well, the the more you're trying to please everybody all the time, you end up. Annoying everyone with trying to be so helpful all the time. <laughs> and uh, I, I often, <laughs> well, as I was sort of looking at that and really working on that as a, as a sort of program, as it were, uh, I, I deliberately stopped trying to please everybody all the time. Stopped being so worried about that or trying to do everything right. And uh, one of the monks here made this comment. He said, oh, you're much easier to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect. And so I didn't know if I should be insulted or or pleased. <laughs> I was quite pleased with it, actually. And so I mention it very often. But it was kind of interesting that you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to please everyone, but that very tryingness is putting everybody off. <laughs> well, not everyone, but it's, it's like it's having a a negative effect not just on you but on the people around you and that when you're able to be more relaxed and so i used to have this little uh mantra i would say to myself just do what you do and let the world make of it what it whatever it will not that you just, you don't care <coughs> but you're not basing your actions or your words on trying to please everyone because you you you're if you, you don't have to look too far to realize Some people will like it, some people will not like it, and most people will completely ignore it. They're not actually paying attention to you that much. So, that uh, looking at fearfulness, um, the sense of, of anxiety, and particularly just knowing it as an emotion without making it personal, the physical sensations of it was very, very helpful. So, it's not so much an issue of what you are afraid of in that moment, but here is the fear feeling, it's like this. Feeling it in the body, okay, this, this particular entity, this being, has is, is a feeling of, of fear in this moment. It's like this. Not that it shouldn't be there, or when's it going to be over, or, but just this is, this is fear, it's like this. And just knowing the, the physical sensation of it. And that uh, one of the interesting things <coughs> Because that, again, when, when Lumpur Sameda was talking about mindfulness of emotion in this way, um, he would point out, say, you, know, you might have um, an emotion of, of liking something or being excited by, by something. And you might think that's really good that you like it, you want more of it. It's, it's delightful, it's delicious. Say, yes. But then if you actually look directly in that feeling of being excited, it's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like... You know, that, that state of, of wanting or getting or, or collecting, it's like, oh, this is actually kind of hard work. Oh, you know, it's not that, not that pleasant. Why do I want more of this? And similarly, and this was really had a big impact on me in terms of fear, because I spent so much of my life trying to get away from that feeling of being afraid, and just sort of trying to, to minimize that, when, you, when I actually looked at the feeling of, of fear and, and appreciated it directly as a physical sensation, it's like, well, it's just this. It's not even as bad as a toothache. It's not even like having a stone in your shoe or a, a piece of grit in your eye. It's like, it's, it's like a sort of uh, a mild discomfort. That's all. Why do I spend so much so much time, so much effort and energy trying to get away from this? What a waste of time. <laughs> why, why is this so unbearable that I have to keep trying to get away from that? So that was a really big revelation to me. That when you bring attention to just the, the physical sensation of fear, it gives a, it's a little bit of tension in the body. It's mildly uncomfortable, but it's not that bad. It's not like people throwing rocks at you or... You know or having a kind of uh, you know, bleeding injury or something so that uh, um, I found very very helpful to, to just get to know the, the emotion just as it is okay this is the fear feeling it's like this to know the physical sensations of it and then to to be training the mind not to be adding anything to that and not to be taking it personally and, uh, does it- Get, uh, lose its power this time because I look a lot at the physical sensations like uh, modification or weight and it is very uh, what is it <laughs> <laughs> well I, I can only talk from my, my own experience I mean I did I, I often talk about this because it was such a big sort of um, thing in my own life but uh, I made a kind of project out of it I had really made it a central uh, center of my uh, of attention in the practice for two or three years, but at the end of that time, then it really had changed a lot. So I don't, I just don't relate to the world in an anxious way, mm-hmm. at all now. I mean, I can worry, but it's it's like one percent of what it used to be. So it's yeah, I mean, but it was. It's like if you want to learn a language, when you when you first started learning English, it's like, oh, this is hard. yeah you know? <laughs> But then you, bit by bit, by bit, if you really apply it yourself, then and slowly it, it it sinks in. But if you don't apply your attention, then it won't it won't change. Um, so you have to do the necessary work. But for my myself, it's yes, it's uh, radically different. So any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes, Mike. Do you find that the, like, practical insight, like that the insight from letting go leads to kind of spontaneous practical insight into how to conduct daily activities? So, for example, letting go of the sense of self or being with the sensations in the body around fear uh, and reflecting on that did, that, did that result in more competent, Actions through the day by itself, it can do. Um, but it, uh, often that change of attitude it, it has effects that are not particularly obvious. Um, so it can be that there's it has an effect that you think, oh, that really changed. You know, something that make, makes an obvious shift or some uh, some different way of of looking at the situation, so that that something that was Stressful or challenging, you think, "Oh, I just, I just uh, my attitude's really changed. I really enjoy that. I'm looking forward to it now rather than dreading." Okay, oh, is my name's on the on the list for cooking, rather than oh, you know, I don't want to get this wrong. What do they think of me? I got to get this right. Then you see, oh, that really changed. I'm I'm ex- I, I'm happy to see my name written up there, and I'm looking forward to it. Oh, that changed. So something might be obvious like that, if that's what you're asking, but. Uh, Sometimes it's not obvious at all. You, just, you don't notice that some, the effect of that kind of letting go, it, it might be um, not apparent. That you, you, you're, not, you're not aware of a difference that, it, that it's made. And it can be, so, quite a lot of time can go by. You know, so sometimes people, uh, will, will, you know, in, in training the mind in this way, then it might be like a year goes by and they go, when did I last blow up at somebody? I was losing my temper all the time. When did I last lose my temper? Oh my goodness, I can't even remember. And you, you, but you hadn't actually noticed you weren't blowing up. or you know, I'm, not, I'm just gonna use it as a random example. But uh, it's, not, it's not obvious that that change has happened. But the, the, the mind is holding the whole, the, the situation's in a different way, but it's not hasn't sort of reached that surface level of, of recognizing, oh, When this kind of thing happened before, then this will be when I blow up, and I just uh, uh, and I didn't do that. But it can be that that uh, that change has happened without you realizing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that that, was that what you were asking? Yeah, I realized uh, after asking the question that it was my (laughs) fear of letting go of that. uh, One, I was worried about letting go of you know losing some kind of competence or ability to take action by, by letting go of sense of self. Um, no, it lets you do things more effectively. <laughs> it's and uh, I mean like that monk saying you much you're much easier to live with when you stop trying to be perfect. <laughs> that uh, when you uh, it doesn't mean I wasn't living t- together with other people, I wasn't trying to to um, do things in a skillful way, but you're much more relaxed about the things that you're doing. And it's often the letting go and non-attachment, it doesn't mean passivity, it doesn't mean like uh, I'm practicing, you know, if, you, if your name is on the list for cooking and you're sitting on a stool in the corner of the kitchen, and say, um, why are you supposed to be chopping vegetables? I'm practicing non-attachment, you know. <laughs> Like, that would be a co- completely wrong understanding. But uh, the non-attachment and letting go, uh, it, uh, our own capacity to act is part of the way things are. Our own. Um, so that you know, what you're letting go of is uh, your resistance or your, your self view or your anxiety. And so then you can uh, respond to the needs of, of each, uh, each moment, each day, in a much more effective way. So that you can. So non attachment can actually result in you doing a lot more. <laughs> being more engaged or being more uh, sincere in the the conversations that you have with people or the the work that you do. So it's letting go doesn't doesn't lead to passivity. Uh, uh, But it's much more uh, when there's something to do, you're happy to do it. If there's nothing to do, you're happy to leave it alone. So you're not coming from the place of I should or I must or they expect or I have to from a sort of uh, idealistic program either from inside or from outside, but it's like, okay, well, my name's on the board, okay, it's my day to do this, okay, right, what do I do? And you're happy to sort of join in, oh, okay, my name's not on the board, okay. Oh, my time is my own, okay, what should I do with that? So that you're, uh, there's an adaptability to the time, the place, the situation. Okay, one last one, yes. Uh, just the end. The question. Um, I didn't quite <laughs> get it. <laughs> In the last bit. <coughs> so you talked about feeling physical sensations, mm-hmm. and then you said about training the mind. Um, and what, how are you training the mind? Uh, uh, well, so um, there's a couple of different aspects to this. So you can f- quite deliberately. Uh, use the meditation to explore particular feelings. So like if you, if you know that you're prone to fear, anxiety, worry, those kind of things, then you can use the meditation to explore that. And again, this was a kind of practice that of Samadhi was teaching that was, was very, very helpful. <coughs> so uh, in the meditation, uh, if you want to explore worry uh, or fear, then... Uh, let, your, uh, let your mind be as quiet and as calm as possible. And then deliberately bring to mind something that you're afraid of, something that you worry about. I, an event in the past, or something that you're responsible, that you're supposed to be looking after, or something that you've got coming up in the future, whatever it might be, something that you know has got that emotional charge to it. So you're deliberately seeding the mind with a, with a, a worry, you're planting a worry seed. So then bringing that to mind or uh, or someone that you have um, a, a, a tense relationship with that you, makes you feel, what am I going to do when I see them? Um, the the point of that is to trigger that reaction of, of worry or fear. And so then once that has been triggered, that seed has, has sprouted, then th- this is kind of the most difficult part of it. Then you deliberately take your attention off that memory or that person's face or that story or whatever and then uh, deliberately turn the attention into the body and then to explore where, where, where do I feel this uh, the sensations that go with this is it in my shoulders is it in my my stomach my chest you know my neck throat you know what what happens because there's almost always some tangible physical sensation that goes with every emotional state to some degree or another So, uh, and that's the trickiest thing, because if something is particularly emotionally loaded, then you bring that person to mind, and then you can spend half an hour just (laughs) replaying the story. No, that's not the idea. The point is to trigger the emotion, and then feel the emotion as physical sensations. And to say, okay, well, wherever it's come from, this is the feeling of fear, this is what worry is like. And so then, for the first few minutes with that, don't try to do anything with it. Just just bring the attention to how the body feels in that, that worried state. Um, and uh, just uh, let, uh, and so as I was describing to Elena, so that what, what the, the fear state feels like as a physical sensation, what that's like. And then to in that moment, to train the mind to have a quality of acceptance. This is fear. There's a, this is a human life, there's a body, there's a mind, it can feel fear, this is part of, I didn't create fear, I didn't invent it, it's not mine, but it's felt here and it feels like this. And so there's a, a radical acceptance of that, that quality, just as an aspect of nature. Here it is, it feels like this, that's all. So it's like that, and so that's part of the training is to not take it personally, not to get lost in a particular stories, but just this is an aspect of the natural world. Just like the weight of the of a proton or a neutron, or the charge on an electron, or the the way that oak trees grow and the it's the seasons change, it's just an aspect of nature. Then, after a, a few minutes of that, then to deliberately relax with that, to let it go, and particularly using the out breath as a way of of um, relaxing the body and letting that those um, sensations. Be, having been recognized, to just let them come to a natural end. And sometimes it takes you know, 10 seconds to launch a, a, uh, a, a, an emotional state and then half an hour for it to fade. Um, but it's then important to stay with it and to use that, that out-breath and the, the natural relaxing, releasing qualities of the out-breath until that, that emotion has faded and the sensations that go with it have faded until the the mind, in a sense, has come back to where you began. That sort of quality of being attentive, aware and and open. So in that whole process you've seen that that fierce uh, event uh, born, doing its thing, running through its cycle and coming to an end. you watched a a, a birth and death process, like a a day beginning and ending, or a breath beginning and ending. A year beginning and ending, it's just a, a cycle of nature. So then you're able to say, well, this is what this is the fear cycle. It's like this: it comes out of nothing, does its thing, goes back into nothing. That's all. And so then, when that has come to its end, then recognizing, okay, that that was an event that, uh, and it when it existed, it felt like this. It's just a, a pattern of nature experienced in this mind. That's all. So then, when you're in the the flow of your everyday activity. And that those feelings of fear get triggered by some person that you talk to, or somebody's uh, somebody that you remember, or something that's sort of on your list of things to do, whatever it might be. Then whoop! Then then okay, that here's that 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 same thing. So at that moment, mm-hmm. then you're worried about them. Where what does he think of me, or what I should be doing? And so, uh, in exactly the same way, that the the, the, the trickiest part is taking the attention off the thing that you're worried about and then bringing it back, okay, yes, that's that's an important thing to be worried about, but what does this worry feel like? So then bringing it back to, to notice, okay, what's the sensation in the body? <coughs> so then know that feeling in the body of that, that worry and then that fear, knowing it, accepting it, not adding anything to it, and then... Using the breath to let go of it, and the more that you train the mind to be able to to do that, then you can actually run that whole program kind of quicker and quicker, and more and more effectively. So that it's not like a whole half hour thing, but just in in a moment where someone speaks to you and you go, oh, "What is she? Why is she Why is she being like that with me?" And then, okay, you bring bringing attention in, notice the, the the tightening, the sort of. Tensing of the muscles, you notice that, acknowledge it. Okay, here's that fear reaction. Relax, and then even as the conversation is going on, then you find it's just the whole attitude towards it has has changed. And I, again, and again that I found that um, uh, really transformed over those two or three years. I was uh, sort of from about eighty eight to ninety one when I was living here. It changed in a, in a, radical, uh, a radical way and uh, that uh, is a very, very useful skill because the, with, with, with fear or desire or aversion or whatever it might be the attention is, is conditioned to go to the object, the thing that you're desiring, the thing that you're afraid of, the thing that you're annoyed by and so this is a training to not get lost in the thing that you desire or fear or whatever but to, to get to know the emotional reaction, and not in a person, not as a personal thing. That like you didn't invent anger or fear or desire. It's just this living system is capable of experiencing that. So then, getting to know it, then, um, then you, in a sense, changing the the mind's relationship to those emotional reactions, not getting lost in them or not, not feeding them. Okay? So I think that's enough for today, an hour has gone by, Just flies by with great ease each day.